0: There's a small city in Northern Ontario with the highest murder rate in the country where the mayor is facing a trial for extortion, where nine indigenous teenagers came from out of town to go to high school and ended up dead. I need you to know there is an activity down by the river that involves throwing indigenous people into the river when they're too drunk to defend themselves. Doesn't that sound like bloodshed?
1: Don't send your kids here no more. Because Thunder Bay is a um, fucking murder city.
0: Thunder Bay is a podcast from Canada Land Media. Subscribe now in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised.
0: back to a time where you were afraid to go to sleep as a child because of a game you played with friends like Bloody Mary or maybe a Ouija board? Or how about sleeping with the light on because of a spooky story or urban legend you heard at bedtime?
1: What really scared me as a kid was not only reading books about the paranormal constantly and believing every word, but The property that I grew up on, the back gate opened to a creepy old cemetery. I was maybe eight or nine. I was put into a bathroom alone in the dark
2: and was told to say Bloody Mary.
3: I was probably about 10 or 11 years old. I was spending the night at my grandparents' house and they told me one night at nine o'clock I had to go to bed. And it's not very long that I'm laying there that I hear what sounds like a voice right next to me clearly say, Michael. And when I tell you that I literally sprang out of the bed and walked on air to get to the door and get out of the room, it's not an exaggeration.
0: I was terrified that if my foot hung over the edge of the bed, a monster would grab it when I fell asleep
1: we had a family that was in a neighborhood near mine a man had gone in there and killed the whole family with a hammer
0: i remember going to bed at night thinking he's going to come through my window or that i was going to wake up and see him coming through my bedroom door to get me i
1: remember as a child being afraid of the hammer man and you were always terrified that he was going to come into your house or that you would see him on the street somewhere and I don't know what I envisioned in my brain what the monster or hammer man would look like. Beady eyes and little teeth. It terrorized us as kids. Just added to the horror.
2: I think we become skeptical of scary stories with age because as adults we have more life experiences and understand that the real boogeyman could live right down the street and exist in real life. And they don't have to be some fantastical paranormal entity
0: that haunts us. As children, our imaginations made it possible for these stories to seem so believable. Despite being told by our parents a million times, There's no such thing as monsters or ghosts. As you got older, skepticism likely started to creep in. And those tales you once heard that seemed so believable slowly just become made-up stories based on fictional characters. But what happens when a story isn't based on a fictional character? What happens when you hear a paranormal story about someone you may know? As intriguing as the story may be, have you ever wondered what sort of aftermath is experienced by the individuals the tale is based on, whether it's true or not? Join me now as we take a deeper look into an urban tale that has been told for decades about an 11-year-old boy who was allegedly possessed by 42 demons. We'll explore how his family who lived in a small town in Connecticut, reached out to their church for help, along with a couple known for their work in paranormal investigation. You'll also hear about a man who later claimed that one of the 42 demons that had originally resided in the young boy had forced him to commit murder. On the morning of February 16, 1981, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson decided to call in sick to work. The 19-year-old arborist had made up the excuse so that he could take the day off and spend it hanging out with his girlfriend, Deborah Glatzel, his younger sisters, and a family friend named Alan Bono. He could have never predicted how a simple decision would later drastically change the course of his day, leading him down a path. TO A DEADLY ALTERCATION Friends of Arnie's most often called him by his middle name, Cheyenne, a name he'd been given after his father. Born in the early 60s, Arnie knew little about his dad because he had abandoned them when he was only nine months old. As a child, Arnie was described as a playful boy who participated in various activities, including Little League and singing in the church choir. Arnie's mother, Mary Johnson, later married again to a man who had a son named Robert and two young daughters named Wanda and Janice. Arnie's new step siblings seemed to revere him as a wonderful and caring older brother. He was everything a brother could be. He taught me a lot, his stepbrother Robert would later say. At the age of 12, Arnie watched as a young female employee working at the local grocery store accidentally knocked over an entire display. Instinctively, Arnie rushed over to help her, not realizing that the brief encounter was with a woman he would later spend the rest of his life with. Her name was Deborah Glatzel, and she was 19 years old. Debbie would later tell people she believed at that moment It had been love at first sight for Arnie, who at that time was seven years her junior. But despite the difference in age, Arnie and Debbie became good friends. And soon, Debbie had formed a friendship with Arnie's mother, Mary. Because Debbie had younger siblings, some the same age as Arnie's younger step-siblings, Debbie and Mary would often get together with the children at the beach. It didn't take long before Debbie had become a central part of the Johnson family. When Arnie turned 16, he ended up dropping out of high school and started to work to help support the family. His mother, who had been developing some health problems, was struggling to make ends meet, and Arnie was determined to bring in another source of income. It was around that time that Arnie finally built up enough courage to ask Debbie out on a date, and she accepted. The two quickly became a couple and formed a marriage-like bond right away, both working to provide for Arnie's family, taking care of his mother and younger siblings. In the summer of 1980, the Johnson family made the decision to move to a more tranquil and peaceful part of Connecticut. The area they had been living in was known for a lot of street fights, and they wanted to move to a safer location. While searching for a new place to live, the family eventually came across a house that seemed ideal. The rental home was in the nearby town of Newtown, and was only a few short minutes from where Debbie's family lived in Brookfield. In fact, Debbie's parents, Carl Sr. and Judy Glatzel, even gave the couple a few hundred dollars to help them with their move, knowing how much it meant to their daughter. So Arnie, his mother, along with his two stepsisters, a niece and Debbie, started preparing to make their move, and they couldn't have been more excited. The house needed some fixing up and a good cleaning, but as far as Arnie and Debbie were concerned, it was perfect. At least, that's what they thought. Just before the family moved in, Problems soon started to arise. Now, this is the part of the story where things start to get a bit confusing. And depending on where you look, you'll find different accounts. But we've done our best to present all sides. In 2006, the TV series A Haunting aired an episode called Where Demons Dwell which included interviews with both Debbie Glatzel and Arnie Johnson. At the beginning of the episode, there is a disclaimer that appears, stating that the events depicted in the program are based on eyewitness accounts. At the beginning of the episode, you see a reenactment of Debbie and Arnie showing up to the rental property with the intentions of cleaning it up before they moved in. In an interview clip, Debbie states that it was like her dream house and she thought they could build a nice, beautiful life there. Also accompanying the couple to the home was Debbie's younger brother David, who she states was their family teddy bear. After arriving, the actress playing Debbie suggests that David head up to the master bedroom to start sweeping. While cleaning, David's character suddenly is shown to feel a presence. Terrified, the boy playing David rushes out of the master bedroom, down the stairs, and directly outside. Debbie's character then rushes outside after him to find out what happened. It's at this point that David says to Debbie, He pushed me, the old man. Debbie recalls thinking, David was making the whole thing up in order to get out of cleaning. She tried to get him to come back into the house with her, but there was no convincing David. He refused and sat outside until they were ready to leave. Once they left the rental home, they headed to Debbie's parents' home in Brookfield where they had been staying temporarily until the move. After going to bed, David's character then wakes up and walks into the kitchen, declaring that he keeps seeing visions of the old man. In one article, it claimed that David reported the visions being of a man with big black eyes, a thin face with animal features and jagged teeth, pointed ears, horns, and hoofs. As if pulled from the pages of a horror novel, He insisted that the man had warned him that neither he or his family should ever return to the house or they would be harmed. Debbie and Arnie couldn't believe what they were hearing. They were sure it was all in David's head and that he was just imagining it all. They were certain he would eventually snap out of it. But after speaking with a previous tenant of the rental, Debbie learned that her brother hadn't been the first to encounter a frightening experience there. According to an article titled, The Devil Made Me Do It, the last tenant claimed she couldn't live there anymore because of an apparition she had experienced of an old man, as well as hearing her name whispered and feeling disembodied hands touching her. Convinced now that there might be something to David's claims, Arnie and Debbie decided they didn't want to move into the house anymore. Arnie's mother, Mary, wasn't pleased and thought the whole thing sounded ridiculous. She didn't believe for a second that any paranormal activity was happening in the home. So she decided to move into the rental property with Arnie's younger step siblings, despite their concerns. Debbie and Arnie hoped that by deciding not to move into the rental property, David's behavior would return back to normal. But apparently, They were wrong. The haunting episode shows David's character displaying violent acts seeming to be thrown around by an unseen force. Other articles claimed that David's voice would change as he made ominous statements in foreign languages while reciting religious texts and that he would repeatedly talk about visions of an entity the family came to call the Beast. By this point, Arnie was living with Debbie's family reportedly to help them feel safe in the midst of David's strange behavior. Arnie stated he could see the fear in David's eyes and believed what he had said he was experiencing was actually happening. Now living under the same roof as David, Arnie became a first-hand witness to the horror the 11-year-old was experiencing. According to Arnie, strange cuts and bruises would suddenly appear on David's body for no apparent reason. He began gaining weight at an unusually rapid rate and was missing school at night he'd begin doing rapid sit-ups seemingly beyond his control at one point judy reported seeing david being choked by no one she could see arnie was determined to try and help david with whatever he was experiencing when the entity as they believed it to be, tried to throw David around, Arnie would help by holding him down. It was at this time that the Glatzels reportedly reached out to their Catholic church for guidance. According to the accounts provided in the haunting episode, their priest suggested that there was an outside chance they could be dealing with demonic possession. He then told them to light candles and pray for David. Later, a ritual cleansing was performed at the house with no positive results. It was at this point that the Glatzels were recommended to seek out the help of Ed and Lorraine Warren, an American couple who had been studying the paranormal for 25 years. Ed, a self taught and self professed demonologist, and Lorraine, a self-professed clairvoyant, probably best known for their ghost hunting investigations, which later inspired films such as the Amityville horror series, The Conjuring, and Annabelle. In a TV interview, Ed and Lorraine explained how they first became interested in the paranormal.
3: It came about because of the fact that I lived in a haunted house as a boy from 5 until 12. Catholicism is based on a supernatural world, as every great religion is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Open up the Bible, and it's full of uh, psychic words, such as spirits, ghosts, apparitions, levitations. So, you know, as a boy going to a parochial school, I would ask the nuns and the priests, uh, what is this about ghosts, the supernatural? Is it for real? Are there really devils? And of course, you know, Catholicism teaches us that these things are real. Mm -hmm. So I based all of my beliefs on that, and I still do today. Mm -hmm. when I go into a home I'm not looking for devils I'm not looking for ghosts what I'm looking for is a natural explanation as to what's going on something physical in the house only when I find that there is something supernatural something paranormal do I accept it and that has to be proven to me 100 Mm percent I have to see a table moving across the room I have to hear those spirit voices I have to see the ghost Uh, people like Lorraine here who are clairvoyants they have to tell me what's there because I, am, I do not have the sixth senses they do.
4: It started, Tony, when I was probably about nine years old, when I first had experiences where I could see lights around people. But the lights that I could see around people, I thought everybody could see that. I didn't know anything about the human aura. And it started from that point mm-hmm. where I would see that. Now, I had nobody to share that with. I was brought up in a private Catholic school, and you couldn't share things like
3: that. We're sort of like the police department of the supernatural world. We find out what's going in there and then we try to rectify it. If it's a human spirit who's causing the problem, this is easy to take care of. Mm-hmm. If it's something inhuman, something diabolical, then we have to go in for the big guns. We have to go to the religious beliefs of Catholicism, Protestantism, Mohammedism, all of these. And you know, it's not just uh, the Catholic priest that we work with. We work with rabbis. We work with ministers of all faiths. We're very ecumenical in our thinking.
0: While their work investigating paranormal activity has been questioned in recent years, back in the 80s, they were respected and trusted by families unable to explain what seemed to be unexplainable. After being contacted by the Glatzel family, Ed and Lorraine Warren arrived at their home the same evening. In a TV interview, the Warrens talk openly about what they experienced after being called to evaluate David. Despite David's young age, they did not appear to try to protect his identity.
4: We were contacted by Father Dennis, who at that time was pastor of St. Joseph's Church in Brookfield, Tony, and he spoke about a young boy who he had been trying to help. He spoke of David and David's problems. He said that David had a slight learning disability, but there was very bizarre behavior occurring to this young 11-year-old boy. When he mentioned about the boy's problem with a learning disability, we had contacted a doctor in Trumbull, Dr. Jen Grasso, and asked him if he would be willing to go to the home with us that night. Mm-hmm. It was a real hot night, Tony. And the reason we asked Dr. Gingrasso was because he too had a son with a similar problem. And we felt that if there were type of medication maybe that David would be on that might have been causing it, that he would recognize that, that that was not the case. David's case was not severe enough to have any type of medication. David was in the very beginning stages of demonic possession.
0: After spending some time in the Glatzel home, it was the Warrens' belief that David was possessed by 42 demons and that he would need to undergo several rites of exorcism in order to free him of them.
4: When we got in the house, we were sitting there at the table talking. Now you would watch David And he would be doodling and then he would look up and it was no longer a little 11 year old boy.
3: Now this 11 year old boy would become extremely strong. I've seen nights when it would take four and five men to hold him down. He would be ranting and raving raving and uh, yelling. There was times when he would attack his mother. Now this boy loved his mother and uh, at one time he actually broke the mother's nose, I believe. Arnie Johnson, who was a young man that was engaged to his, uh, his sister, Debbie, would help every night to control the boy. He'd come home from work, he was a landscaper, worked very hard, and uh, he'd have his supper, lay down, but then just around 11 o'clock was when this would occur to David. <clears throat> As maid said, all of a sudden you look at him, he was normal, the next second it wasn't David anymore. And uh, this would go on until the sun came up. Uh, The boy would roll around, Uh, he would go into fits. Uh, i seen one time when he actually levitated, had extreme strength, Uh, terrible obscenities would come from him. And Arnie Johnson, who was a young man, who I would call probably uh, an all-American boy. He loved sports. He was into baseball. He had many awards for baseball. But this kid, 18 years old at the time, would stay awake all night long and then go to work the next morning. But he made a fatal mistake. One night he said, and he he screamed at these devils, Mm -hmm. take me on, leave my little buddy alone.
0: According to Debbie, a priest they consulted with told Arnie it was the worst possible thing he could have ever done. Apparently, it was a huge mistake to threaten a demon.
4: When you challenge the demonic, it doesn't act at that particular given time, Tony. Mm-hmm. It waits until you are the most vulnerable, mm-hmm. and then it strikes.
0: After consulting with their priest... Arnie was given a blessed crucifix to wear. Then they returned home, where Debbie recalls David speaking to Arnie in another voice, stating that he knew where he'd been and who he'd been with, and who had given him the crucifix. Debbie then said that somehow the crucifix suddenly came off Arnie's neck and flew across the room. During one of David's attacks, He said out loud, Cheyenne dies at work tomorrow. The following day, Arnie had a 20-foot fall while working on a 72-foot tall tree. It wouldn't be the last time Arnie would have a suspicious brush with death. While driving, Arnie somehow lost control of his vehicle and crashed it into a tree. The crash wasn't severe and Arnie wasn't injured. But he was shaken up by what had happened, claiming that David's demons had taken control of the vehicle and had caused the crash. In the haunting episode, one of the rites of exorcism that was allegedly performed on David is portrayed, showing two priests, the Glatzels, the Warrens, and Arnie. During the exorcism, David appears to die, as Debbie's character screams for the priest to stop. You're killing him. David suddenly comes back to life again. In an interview, Lorraine Warren says that they had only released one of the demons and that they couldn't stop until they were all gone. Jim Perry, the host of the paranormal podcast, *Euphemid*, with over 25 years covering cases that examines the paranormal, explains the process of an exorcism and the stigma surrounding demon possession.
2: It's a very structured, particular process that goes on for an exorcism. The priest will go in, he'll be specialized in exorcisms. There is a training program that happens through the Catholic Church because essentially it's described as as really the fight of their life once they begin an exorcism. they're set up with their candle, their holy water, a prayer book. The room is essentially stripped of all furniture. There's a single bed usually. There's folks in there for restraint. If you or I were to walk into the room and see something like this going on, never mind the kicking, the screaming, the yelling, the perfectly spoken Latin, I think we would be alarmed. The process really doesn't stop until they feel that the demon or the demons, have been vanquished from the possessed. And sometimes this can take weeks. Exorcisms have gone on for as long as two years. And the thing is, is that once you start, you can't stop. Because once you stop, allegedly that's when the demon will follow. They'll follow the folks in the room. Within that community, there is a a great fear and a great respect for this process in which they don't take lightly. They believe it's life or death. They believe that everything they do is a battle of will between this and this demon, this fallen angel. And depending on how strong that demon was in his past life as an angel, whatever skill set he had acquired is going to be things that he brings to the table in terms of battling the will of the exorcist. A lot of cardinals, bishops, they're not exactly fans of this process, right? This is not a glorious position to be had for them. In fact, it's one of those things that can lead to a lot of controversy, a lot of strife, a lot of questioning of methods and tactics, a lot of allegations of abuse, of coercion. So it's not a topic that they're essentially very interested or excited to be a part of, but something that they feel is necessary. It's something that probably has a bit of shame involved with it, if you are to be one that is allegedly possessed. Because that pulls into question all sorts of things. The propensity for there being abuse of all. Is this trauma related? Is there a mental disorder related to this? You think you're possessed? Like, you're crazy. The Catholic Church and organized religion would say that the rites of exorcism is a rite of healing, but you don't get through any of that healing Without a lot of screaming, a lot of kicking, alleged levitation, alleged items being thrown. There's been instances where individuals have been thrown through windows. Just hearing the gnarly, barbarous, animalistic screaming and change of tones and reciting of The Exorcism Rites really taps into something very primitive, I think, in us. It's shocking. It's very shocking. There's incidents that happen within these situations that I think perhaps do defy what our belief systems are. And they challenge us to question, are some of these biblical stories real? Are demons real?
0: Once the exorcism was over, the narrator of the episode goes on to say that David recovered completely and resumed his life as a young boy, and that the harrowing encounter had brought Debbie and Arnie even closer together. Debbie states that their love had only grown stronger, and that Arnie had been willing to sacrifice his own life to save her brothers. Arnie says that he hopes people can open their minds and hearts and realize that such things do exist and the episode ends. Now here's the thing. The haunting episode seems to have left out a major part of the story. The part of the story where Arnie later murders someone and claims that one of David's demons made him do it. At the end of the haunting episode, it surmised that David experienced a miraculous recovery following the exorcism. In real life, however, David's older brother, Carl Jr., would recall the source of David's affliction and subsequent healing as being caused by something quite different. But before we get into that, we need to fill in the missing part of the story that was mysteriously left out of the haunting episode called Where Demons Dwell. Around the same time that David had been showing improvements in his behavior, Arnie and Debbie had decided to move out of the Glatzel home and search for a place on their own. It was then that Debbie met a 40-year-old man named Alan Bono. How exactly they met is unclear, but it can be assumed their paths crossed because they both worked in the same field. Bono, managing a kennel owned by his sister, and Debbie working as a dog groomer. Alan and Debbie soon became friends, and it didn't take long before Bono had offered Debbie a job grooming at the kennel, even offering to rent her and Arnie an apartment he owned. According to various sources, it was around that time that Arnie started to display odd behaviors seemingly out of the blue. Debbie claimed that Arnie would go into a trance. He would growl and say he saw the beast, but later would have no memory of it. Debbie recalls Arnie waking up one night, yelling and punching at a chest kept in their bedroom. The next morning, he complained about a pain in his hand and had no memory of what happened the night before. Debbie, as well as the famed paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren, became concerned that Arnie was now the subject of demonic possession and started to plan to have a rite of exorcism performed. As mentioned at the beginning of this episode, on February 16th, Arnie decided to skip work in order to spend the day with his sisters and cousin. Debbie was working at the kennel that day, but the group had planned to meet up later for lunch at the old Mug and Munch. When you look up details about the restaurant, The venue has the following description. If you're looking to impress your date, Old Mug & Munch is the place to do it. The drinks are strong, the atmosphere laid back and welcoming. Grab a seat and check out the many specials Old Mug & Munch offers. Alan Bono made plans to join them there as well, offering to pay for the meals. While at lunch, the adults consumed quite a bit of alcohol. Their server, Susan Burroughs, reported that Alan and Arnie, the two men, had drank between 13 to 15 glasses of wine in a two- to three-hour period. After the meal, the group all headed back to the kennel together for the remainder of the afternoon. After work, Debbie then took the girls out for pizza while Arnie helped Alan repair a stereo. Afterwards, they all met once again, this time at Bono's apartment, located above the kennel, to watch some TV together. Wanda Johnson, Arnie's younger stepsister, reported that the following then happened. Bono became agitated smacking his fist against his palm repeatedly. Debbie suggested the girls leave for the night, but Mary, Arnie's other stepsister, was then grabbed by Bono, keeping her from following. Debbie then intervened, at which point Arnie also became involved. He told Bono to leave the girls alone. All of a sudden, it just broke out. I can't explain it. It just broke out is all, said Wanda, who was 15 years old at the time. The argument then reportedly intensified. At one point, it is believed that Bono made a crude comment about Debbie, though what he said exactly is unknown. Debbie and Wanda tried to keep the two men apart, but Wanda found herself unable to move Arnie. He was like a stone. I couldn't budge him, she said. Perhaps more frightening, Arnie had then begun to growl aggressively. Wanda recalls a flash of silver, after which it just stopped. Alan Bono was left lying on the ground, covered in blood. The bleeding had been caused by multiple stab wounds to his chest. Next to him lay the pocket knife Arnie Johnson always carried. When paramedics arrived on the scene, Alan was still alive. Debbie was hysterical, crying out for them to help him. The investigating officer soon found Arnie wandering the streets, covered in Bono's blood, and in a daze. When they approached him, he reportedly told police he might have hurt someone, but can't remember. Witness statements and crime scene evidence directly tied Arnie to Alan Bono's murder. The men had been arguing, tempers flared, and it got out of hand. It appeared to be an open and shut case. That is until Arnie's attorney, Martin Manila, got onto the case and dropped a bombshell. He was going to argue in a court of law that Arnie was not guilty by virtue of demonic possession. Manila argued that Arnie wasn't responsible for killing Bono because it hadn't been Arnie who attacked him. It was a demon that had latched onto him during one of David's exorcisms. Manila would later say during an interview, Everybody asks, How did you come up with a defense like this? I didn't come up with this. This is what was presented to me. I went to see Ed and Lorraine and decided to take the case after talking to them. They told me that when you're possessed, you have no control over your actions. That stuck in my mind. The defense wasn't exactly unheard of. Manila cites two criminal cases in England where the argument of not guilty by demonic possession was presented and the outcomes were favorable towards the defendant. However, there were several differences between these cases and Arnie's. First, neither of the English defendants were accused of murder. Second, neither case was heard by a jury. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, While the argument had been heard by English courts, never before had a lawyer made the argument of not guilty by demonic possession in the United States. This defense was the first of its kind. Still, Manila was confident in his strategy. The courts have dealt with the existence of God. Now they are going to have to deal with the existence of the devil, he proclaimed. Investigators didn't discredit this theory, but proceeded with caution, hoping to avoid the trial turning into a media circus. They sought interviews with the priests who had been involved in the multiple exorcisms performed in the Glatzel House. They also spoke with Ed and Lorraine Warren for a better understanding on what had occurred. As the investigation continued, doubts began to surface regarding the credibility of Manila's defense. For one, the Bishop of the Diocese of Bridgeport, Father Nicholas Greco, indicated that a formal exorcism was never performed, as church investigation did not provide suitable evidence of demonic possession. He cites, in part, that the psychological exams needed to convince the church that an exorcism was needed was never performed on David. Perhaps more damning was the skepticism that came from the Glatzel family themselves. Judy Glatzel reported she had taken David to a psychologist once, but his rates were high and had requested the whole family attend the next appointment. They just want to stick needles into my kid. There is no way in hell they're going to do that, she stated. Carl Sr. appeared to be absent during David's attacks, as well as David's older brother, Carl Jr. When discussing a book written about the case, The Devil in Connecticut, Written by Gerald Brittle and Lorraine Warren, Carl Sr. reports that despite what the book claims, he never told the interviewer he thought his son was possessed. Carl Jr., David and Debbie's brother, took a more aggressive stance on the subject. Around the time of the republishing of Brittle's book, Carl filed a lawsuit against Brittle and Lorraine Warren, suing them for false accusations. Carl Jr. stated, My brother was never possessed. He, along with my family, were manipulated and exploited, something the Warrens were very good at. And along with their author, Gerald Brittle, they concocted a phony story about demons in an attempt to get rich and famous at our expense, and we have the evidence to prove it. Carl asserts the family also cooperated in regards to Arnie's upcoming trial. The Warrens told my family numerous times that we would be millionaires and the book would help get my sister's boyfriend, Arnie, out of jail. I knew from day one it was a lie, but as a child, there was nothing I could really do about it. The skepticism in the validity of David and Arnie's possession wasn't limited to the Glatzel family. Despite Debbie's claims of Arnie displaying behavior similar to David's, Friends and co-workers reported they noticed nothing strange about their companion. The EMT who arrived on the scene testified. He heard Debbie telling her father, who she had called before calling 911, Oh daddy, he didn't mean to do it, but you know how he gets when he's drinking. Carl Sr. would tell an officer on the scene, Cheyenne did it, making no mention of suspicions of demonic possession. Arnie's loved ones would insist he wasn't a violent person. As Debbie states, Cheyenne's problem was that he was too good. That's his problem. He's too good. Others, however, would tell reporters differently. One article on the case described Arnie as A young man, quick to anger, extremely possessive of the woman he calls his wife, a man who once ripped a small stuffed animal to shreds with his knife, after an argument at a tree service where he once worked. Given these counterarguments to the defense of the devil made me do it, many wondered if Manila's strategy would stand a chance. Would the argument of demonic possession actually save Arnie from a guilty verdict? In short, no. Early on in the court proceedings, Superior Court Judge Robert J. Callahan rejected the defense strategy prohibiting it from being presented during the trial. I'm not going to allow the defense of demonic possession. Evidence of demonic possession is simply not relevant. It would be incompetent evidence, and I will not allow it, Judge Callahan stated. Denied his dramatic defense, Manila then switched tactics by arguing that Arnie had killed Alan in self-defense. The state was arguing that both men had been intoxicated and a violent fight broke out when Arnie attacked Bono after he had grabbed Mary and insulted Debbie. Manila altered this narrative, having Arnie testify that it was Alan who had started the argument and had lunched towards him. Arnie testified he couldn't remember anything past that point. Ultimately, the jury returned with a verdict of guilty and Arnie was convicted with the lesser charge of first-degree manslaughter. On December 18, 1981, he was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison, the maximum sentence available. Judge Callahan explained his decision by citing the lack of remorse Johnson displayed in regards to taking another man's life. Shockingly, however, Arnie would serve less than four years of his sentence. After only four years in prison, Arnie was released on good behavior. During his short time behind bars, Arnie managed to earn a GED, take college courses, and marry Debbie in January 1984. The debate about whether David and Arnie were truly possessed still continues. Diane Student, the host of the paranormal podcast, History Ghost Bump, explains why she's skeptical that David was ever possessed and Arnie's defense of being possessed while he murdered Alan Bono.
1: For me, I say in most cases that I'm a skeptical believer. So I really am skeptical when it comes to things, unless it proves to be legitimate. When somebody tells me that an 11 year old child is possessed by even one demon, I'm already like, mm, I don't know, because why would a demon want to hang out in a kid's body? I mean, that just, you know, if you're going to hang out in a body, I'd rather be an adult, not a child. And you're talking about 42 demons in a child. That just, I don't know, that seems a little bit over the top to me. This was back in the 80s. Did we know everything that was going on with children back then when it comes to maybe some form of mental illness? There's all kinds of things that could have been going on with this boy. And then when you have an adult man saying that this child and something inside of him made you do a criminal act, it just, it's kind of like reminds me of the son of Sam who basically said the devil made him do it too. And it was because a dog was possessed and telling him to do it. I just am very skeptical that that was really happening.
0: What seems to have gotten lost in discussing this urban legend over the years has been the impact it's had on the Glatzel and Bono family. Little is known about Alan Bono outside of his life in Brookfield, Connecticut. He'd been a plantation manager in Australia for a short time before moving to Florida where he had a sister. His sister owned a series of kennels including the one in Connecticut where Bono moved to manage. One article describes him as a man who liked to talk about things he'd done and places he'd seen. It appeared he'd been good friends with both Arnie and Debbie, and there had been talk about the three of them one day opening up a pet store together. In the articles that covered Alan Bono's murder and trial, more attention was focused on the possibility of both Arnie and David struggling with the supernatural rather than the victim of the crime itself. Whether or not David and Arnie had actually been possessed by demons, what is known to be true and undeniable is the devastating impact the whole experience had on several families. In a press release published on October 8, 2007, Carl Jr., who was 42 years old at the time, was quoted speaking out about the book that had been published by Lorraine Warren and Gerald Brittle based on the so-called true events about his family. Carl Jr. stated, Reluctantly, I read the book for the first time in 27 years and was simply mummified. How could anyone believe this? Many instances in the book are complete lies, and I appear as the villain in the book simply because I had a sane voice and knew the story was false since the beginning. There were no demons. It was all about the money. It took me 27 years to get where I am today. And there is no way I am putting that in jeopardy by allowing this to happen all over again. The book had originally been published in 1983 and then reprinted again in 2006. Carl Jr. felt prompted to see a lawyer after finding out that the Warrens had been lecturing about his family for over two decades, had their story written up in several books, and had been selling a video based on them. Carl Jr. also stated, I want to put this both behind me and my brother David for good. I just hope it lets other people like us know that they are not alone, and maybe they will come forward as well and name fraud for what it is. In an article published in the Hartford Current, Carl Jr. is quoted saying, Debbie, my sister, said I'm doing it for the money. I'm doing this for punitive damages and everything they did to us as children. He goes on to say, David was a good kid. He never bothered nobody. He lived a living hell because of all the negative attention. Lorraine Warren is quoted in responding to the lawsuit by saying that her husband had worked hard on the Glatzel case, which makes the idea of potential legal action all the more difficult. It's too upsetting a situation. You can't imagine something that you've done that nobody could poke holes in and have something come out by somebody who knows nothing about what they are doing. A complaint filed by Carl Glatzer's lawyer claims that his brother David had suffered with mental illness during his childhood, which caused him to experience hallucinations and delusions. Between 1979 and 1982, David experienced increased symptoms which caused severe trauma to the Glatzel family. After seeking professional medical help, David was later enrolled in a special school for children, experiencing similar challenges. To this day, Carl Jr. says his brother is symptom-free. Carl Jr. Glatzel, now the owner of a construction company, along with his brother David, have been apparently writing their own book about their experiences where they have plans to expose the Warrens as charlatans and tell what really happened in the summer of 1980. Diane explains why she believes people have become skeptical regarding Ed and Lorraine Warren's investigative paranormal work over the years.
1: When it comes to Ed and Lorraine Warren, people fall, I would say, on two sides. One of them would be the one side, people believe that they were completely legitimate, they were the real deal. And then there's other people who are like me that are very cynical when it comes to Ed and Lorraine Warren. And the reason why I have some issues with the Warrens is I believe maybe in the beginning, they started off with a real desire to help people. And maybe they really did have some abilities. Lorraine claimed to be a medium. And then Ed got into exercising demons. Ed Warren was never sanctioned by the Catholic Church. He was not doing it under their jurisdiction in any way. I believe he was self taught. Obviously, you can read books on demons and demonology and go out and perform the things for yourself, but he didn't have any legitimate certification or the church behind him in any of that. And so I think in the beginning, when they were younger, maybe what they were doing was really trying to be helpful, but then they realized that this could be a cash cow, and they really did market themselves and make a lot of money doing it. For example, when people are watching any of the Conjuring movies, who do you see in all those Conjuring movies? Well, it's the Warrens. When people think of the Amityville Horror, it's the Warrens who are part of that. And so all of that was just kind of a marketing thing for them. And I actually know people who worked with Ed and Lorraine Warren. And when you see things like the Enfield Poltergeist, which I believe was the theme in the Conjuring 2 movie, they were there for a day. And yet when you watch the movie, it seems like they were the ones who took care of the whole thing. They would always kind of show up on the scene and then get the notoriety to go with it and then be on their way. And I don't know how many of the hauntings were actually legitimate. For me, with the Amityville horror, I kind of wonder if anything was really going on there. Maybe there was some kind of paranormal activity happening but was it this horribly demonic house that these people ran out of after only living there for a month because it was so horrible and they just left everything? Well, I question that because everybody who's lived in the house after that hasn't had any problem living there and have had no haunting activity. So it it makes you wonder what's going on there. So Ed and Lorraine Warren, I really do wonder how legit they were. It just, to me, it feels like they really were trying to just get their faces on TV and their names out there and, and, See if they could make some money with it. There was always books that came out afterward. And in this case that you're talking about, an 11-year-old boy, you just don't put a child's name out to the public, especially with something like this. Most people know that the Exorcist movie was based on a real case that had happened. And instead of it being a girl, it was a boy. But I bet most people out there have no idea what his real name is because he was protected from that. And that's the way it should be
0: we were unable to find any updates on the pending lawsuit against Lorraine Warren and Gerald Brittle. We did discover that later down the road, Gerald Brittle, too, filed a lawsuit against Lorraine Warren. In March 2017, The Hollywood Reporter published an article stating that Gerald Brittle claimed to have not only had an exclusive deal with Lorraine Warren, and that the producers of the horror film The Conjuring had substantially lifted his work. Brittle claimed The Conjuring, The Conjuring 2, and Annabelle infringed on his exclusive rights to create derivative works based on the Warrens' cases. He claimed that in a 1978 agreement for his book, the couple agreed to a no-competing work provision that is still in effect. Under it, Brittle stated the Warrens weren't allowed to make or contract any work based on the same subject as his book, The Demonologist, specifically their lives and experiences as paranormal investigators. This lawsuit was eventually dropped. Also published in 2017 was another article by The Hollywood Reporter claiming that Ed Warren, had allegedly initiated a relationship with an underage girl back in the 60s with Lorraine's knowledge. Not only did she know about it, but she allowed the 15-year-old girl to live in their home. Now in her 70s, Judith Penny said in a sworn declaration that she lived in the Warrens' house as Ed's lover for four decades. The article goes on to say, Having not yet gained enough fame as a self-trained demonologist to pay the bills in the early 1960s, Ed was working as a city bus driver in Monroe, Connecticut. Penny was a student at Central High School in the nearby town of Bridgeport who rode his bus. The two began an enamorous relationship, Penny said in a legal declaration she gave in November 2014. According to that document, by 1963, she had moved into the Warrens' home. For the next 40 years, she said she had a sexual relationship with Ed. At first, Penny stayed in a bedroom directly opposite the one occupied by the married couple. But eventually, she moved into an apartment built for her above the home. One night, he'd sleep downstairs, she said in a recording. One night, he'd sleep upstairs. Even in 1963, a teenage girl did not move in with a married man without attracting notice. That year, Penny was arrested after someone reported her relationship with Ed to local police. According to her November 2014 declaration, she spent a night in the North End prison in Bridgeport while police tried to persuade her to sign a statement admitting to the affair. After Penny refused to cooperate, she was ordered by the court to report to a delinquent youth office for the next month. According to Penny's account, Ed picked her up from school every week and drove her to the mandated meetings. Penny has said Ed told her many times that she was the love of his life. The Warrens, according to her, presented her variously as a niece or poor girl whom they'd taken in out of charity. In May 1978, in her 30s, Penny became pregnant with Ed's child. She stated in the declaration, Lorraine persuaded her to have an abortion because the birth of the child could become public and any scandal could ruin the Warrens' business. Though Lorraine was claimed to be a devout Catholic, Penny said her real God was money. In a tearful recording obtained by The Hollywood Reporter, Penny recalled, They wanted me to tell everyone that someone had come into my apartment and raped me, and I wouldn't do that. I was so scared. I didn't know what to do, but I had an abortion. The night they picked me up from the hospital after having it, they went out and lectured me and left me alone. it would appear, through the various accusations over the years, that the Warrens' personal and professional lives were being scrutinized with the same amount of skepticism as their paranormal investigations. What part of what Ed and Lorraine had portrayed to the public was actually true, and how much of that was a facade? And what exactly had qualified them to be considered experts in the field of demonology and clairvoyance. What credentials did they have that allowed them to feel confident in advising families on whether or not to seek the advice of a medical professional or whether to go through the rite of exorcism? If there's one thing that this story has proven, is that things aren't always what they seem. I want to thank the several podcast hosts that helped us out with the intro to this episode by providing us with some of their personal stories from their childhood. Daniel Brewer from Films Fatal to the Flesh. Allie McLennan from Insight, Mysteriously Listed and Beyond Your Nightmares. Mike Morford from Criminology, Murder in My Family and Crime Sphere. Cambo from True Crime Island. Jamie Rice from Murderish and Crime Sphere, and Justin Evans from Peripheral and Gen Y. All of them have great shows, and I hope you'll check them out. And I would also like to say a very special thank you to the two podcast hosts that helped provide some insight into this paranormal case. Jim Perry, the host of Euphemit, and Diane Student, the host of History Goes Bump. I asked both of them to share a little bit about their shows.
2: My name is Jim Perry, and I'm the host for a podcast called UFAMet. It's a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. It's an IU documentary show where I am boots on the ground, and I am out there experiencing everything that these folks are in relationship to their human distinction between what's real What is the unknown? What is the anomalous? It's a very immersive show. It's a show in which I've found myself struggling with the concept of keeping one foot in and one foot out. I've experienced a lot myself just by proxy, and these experiences keep stacking up. I have this very interesting relationship with the paranormal as a storyteller. I'm not really an investigator. I'm not out there to really prove or disprove anything. I'm there to just collect stories about the human relationship to this stuff.
0: Jim recommends you check out their next episode, being released on October 30th, which covers...
2: My conversation with Zar, who is a voodoo priest and real-life vampire. And we are in the streets of New Orleans. We're talking about the history and lore of that place and his relationship to it, and breaking down a very emotional and provocative story about what it's like to learn that you're a vampire at an early age, as, as well as being gay. You know, as well as being into other fringe things. And what is that like coming into a world where you feel like you're the other?
0: And here's Diane Student talking about her show.
1: I am Diane Student, the creator and host of the History Ghost Bump podcast, which features ghost tours for the theater of the mind. And I cover haunted history. An episode that I would suggest people listen to is episode 257, which features Waverly Hill Sanatorium.
0: The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to Golden dot com a U Slash G E. I can
3: feel the madness. Some
2: standing at my door. I hope they can't get in, cuz I'm not prepared to run. I can feel the
3: madness. Some standing at my door. I hope they can't get in, cuz I'm not prepared to run.